0: I'll be reading Psalm 14. Um, If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 453. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You got better at that since I left. Man, we just got back from vacation a couple days ago. We were in Alaska with my parents and Miriam's mom and her sister. It was a really sweet time, not as cold as you might think, but just as beautiful as you would probably assume. Uh, Hopefully I'll get the chance to share some of the stories of our experiences there uh, with you personally or maybe even from up here at some point, but a really sweet time. It was good to be away, but better to be back with you all. So good to be home with family. Uh, Well, as it turns out, this psalm, Psalm 14, has an almost identical twin in Psalm 53. Psalm 53 is something that Justin covered for us last summer when we were doing our summer in the psalms. His sermon was really good. Uh, but I don't want to preach the same exact sermon, which I probably would if you hadn't heard that, but you have heard that. Most of you have heard that, so I'm not going to preach that exact same sermon and come at it from a a slightly different angle, Uh, but I would definitely encourage you to go check his out for maybe a more traditional, uh, straightforward take. Uh, It's an excellent take uh, on the twin of this text. Well, in the world of sports, uh, which some of you have already begun to roll your eyes, but this is all I got this morning, okay? In the world of sports, there's something that is called home field advantage. And it's when you're playing in your own stadium, and the majority of the people that are in the stands of your own stadium are behind you. Uh, there's just a special extra level of energy that comes when there are 100,000 fans chanting your name and cheering for your team. So naturally, when you're not in your stadium, when you don't have home field advantage, it's going to be the exact opposite experience in that stadium. There's going to be voices that are booing you. There's going to be voices that are mocking you and cheering when you fall and when you fail. But often in those away stadiums, there's like this little pocket of your team's fans in the corner of the stadium. In college, they actually sell just a really small portion of tickets to the opposite team's uh, fan base and they're up uh, stra- uh, stranded in a little corner of the stadium. Um, but when the visiting, a visiting player is in a visiting stadium uh, and he does something really well, often you'll see him running over to that corner where his fans are and getting them all excited and, and all riled up and uh, enjoying their encouragement and support over there in that corner of the stadium. Psalm 14 is like that little section of fans in the away stadium for us. As a Christian, the more you look around you, the more you'll notice that the world is not your home stadium. We are not on our home turf right now in any sense. It just does not value what we value, and they're certainly not cheering us on in any way. The deafening, defining noise in our stadium of life right now as Christians is mostly anti-Christian, right? There's these voices coming out of the crowd, coming at you saying things like, man, what you believe is so narrow, knock it off. What you believe, uh, maybe that's good for you, but don't be an extremist. Certainly don't tell anybody else about it. What you believe is dangerous, what you believe is bigoted. Maybe chill out on what you believe a little bit, okay? Maybe it's your own voice in your own head and your own heart that's just so utterly fatigued with everything and it just takes more effort to follow Jesus than to give in to temptation and you're tempted to just to leave Jesus. But Psalm 14 is like that little pocket of fans up in the corner of the stadium and they're saying, hang on, hang on, you can make it, keep going, keep going. We are not sure what circumstances led David to write Psalm 14. What forced him to direct his gaze to that corner of the stadium with the fans that were cheering him on. But something was going on in his life that caused him to look around and say, man, I am living in a world where no one loves the God that I love. None of them love him and none of them want to be like him. It had him feeling isolated, probably vulnerable to their attacks, maybe even self-doubtful. Does our increasing marginalization as Christians have you feeling the same? Do you feel isolated when you watch the news or scroll through social? Do you feel vulnerable? Maybe some doubts are creeping in about the legitimacy of your faith because the noise out there is so loud and so deafening? Look up in the corner of the stadium at Psalm 14 this morning and find fresh assurance that you are on the right path. Here's today's big idea. When you feel marginalized today, remember who wins on the last day. When you feel marginalized today, remember who wins on the last day. So we'll have two points this morning that sort of tease this out from David's perspective. They're kind of like two anchors that hold David steady, that he tosses into the sea, his sea of life, to hold him firmly in God's kind grasp. So number one, first today, when your faith is under attack, remember the fate of the foolish. When your faith is under attack, remember the fate of the foolish. I say under attack because of verse four, if you look at it, it says, all the evildoers eat up my people as they eat bread. So David is looking around him in his life and he's seeing <coughs> hatred against believers in the one true God. And he's seeing that hatred for for God's followers was as natural and normal for the attack normal for the attackers as eating bread, like something that we do every day. Something that's so common, that's how common it was for David to feel under attack. What we see here and what we experience as Christians is that hatred of God translate to hatred translates to hatred of God's people. Hatred of God translates into hatred of God's people. Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan many years ago, said, this is a Christ-hating and saint-eating world. Isn't that true? This is a stubborn and sad reality. I say stubborn because it's been going on for thousands of years. David experienced it too. As Christians, the reality is that every single day of our lives, we are surrounded by fools. We are surrounded by foolishness. Sometimes we are foolish ourselves. I know it probably sounds harsh, (laughs) To call the world and to call some of us fools. But when David uses the word fool, it may not be what naturally comes to your mind at first. He's not calling people stupid, at least not in the traditional sense. Biblical foolishness is not defined by a deficiency of intellect, but by an indifference to God. So when he says the fool says in his heart, that's what he's talking about. Someone who has an indifference to God. So I think a modern-day translation of this might sound a little bit like a fool says in his heart, meh, God, just like indifferent. And that's how we've gotten to the America and the world that we've gotten to. It's almost like Paul was describing us 2,000 years ago when he wrote Romans 1. He said this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, Claiming to be wise, they became fools, which is what David is talking about in Psalm 14. How did they become fools? Meh, God, indifferent to him. I realize that in our world today, there is a whole subset of people who say, there's no God. Get with it, peeps. And those people are thought to be some of the most intellectually compelling citizens that we know in our world. They're thought of as provocative, as clever, as wise. People like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, Stephen Hawking. These guys seem so sincere, so well-researched and compelling, but don't be fooled, they are not right. Derek Kidner says the assertion there is no God is treated in scripture not as a sincere if misguided conviction, but as an irresponsible gesture of defiance. They're not in a good place with God when they are arguing away his existence and trying to pull other people into that belief too. Maybe there's someone in here this morning who considers himself an atheist. Maybe what's on screen there is a little bit offensive to you or maybe you just don't care at all. I don't know where you're at with that this morning. But if you're willing to, I would love to speak with you, to dialogue with you, to hear from you, to listen, consider your arguments, arguments, I love you, Jesus loves you, he wants the best for you, so do I, so do the people around you in here. All that, but I don't think that David is actually referring to creedal atheists, like people whose creed is atheism, there is no God. I don't think that's necessarily who David is referring to here. People who write and speak and try to persuade others to believe that there is no God. I don't think that's who David is addressing. I think David's probably referring more to functional atheists, people who live like they're atheists, whether or not they profess that they are atheists. When David looked around, he saw a bunch of functional atheists. And here's what I mean by functional atheists. Look at verse 1. It says, The fool says, where does he say this? He says it in his heart that there is no God. So I, I think what David means by this is that these people aren't saying that they're atheists with their mouths. They're saying it with their lives, the way that they live. If you strip this verse down to the studs in the original Hebrew, it actually translates closer to, the fool says in his heart, no, God. That's what it actually translates to. So a fool wants to be in the driver's seat of all of life's decisions. They are functional atheists, whether or not they profess atheism. Functional atheists spend, without, spend their money without considering the Lord. Functional atheists scroll their phones without considering the Lord. Functional atheists watch their TVs and their screens without considering the Lord. I wonder if there's more functional atheism in our lives than we realize. Just indifference to God in any given moment. Well, to David, it felt like this group had home field advantage in his life because he was way, 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 way in the minority. Look at verse 1. There is none who does good. And it had gotten so bad that look at verse 2. It says, The Lord is looking down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. Verse 3, They have all turned aside. There is none who does good, not even one. Man, is this description even the least bit offensive to you. It is to me. I find offense in this. Imagine if you, instead of reading this ancient psalm off the the page of your Bible right now, imagine if David walked right up to you right now and said this, God told me to tell you that A, you are abominable, B, you are corrupt, C, you don't do anything good, and D, you don't know anything. (laughs) Imagine that. That's offensive. This is an offensive psalm. But this is our reality without a moral anchor. And if there is to be any hope for any of us, this is the true biography of our lives, Psalm 14, particularly those first three verses. This is the reality, the biography, our resume as human beings. We have to own it if we are going to find the solution for it, the hope for it. Without an anchor, right and wrong is up for grabs. Everyone just does what is right in his own eyes. Does that sound good to you? Maybe at moments it sounds good to you. You just get to do what you want whenever you want. But I think if you run that theory to its logical end, you'll discover that the end is disastrous because when my conception of good and your conception of good collide, well, someone's gonna get hurt, right? Someone's gonna end up disappointed. So there has to be something outside of humanity that looks in at humanity And defines the bounds of good and bad, of right and wrong. We obviously, as believers, believe that the word of God is that standard. The bounds uh, that demonstrate, that tells us, that defines for us what is right and wrong. But the the scriptures are not like, it's not like a a list of do's and don'ts. The Bible is not a, a list of rules. No, it's a description of who God is and what he is like and what he loves. The whole of the scriptures is an invitation into a relationship with and likeness to God. And without this relationship, the entirety of our lives is ultimately futile. Sure, we may free, uh, string together a few years of, of really, you know, a fun life. Maybe we collect a few properties along the way, have a nice 401k, grab a boat. But to what end? If we want to get after the real meaning of life, what it's all about and enjoy an even deeper one life after death, we're going to have to reject the way of the fool and enter into the path of the faithful. That's the contrast in this psalm, the fool and the faithful. And if you look carefully, you'll notice that the foolish make a virtue of doing what they want. It's not complicated really for a fool. They want what they want and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. And there's really no throttle on that for them. Eventually, this kind of unfettered living has disastrous results. Apparently not much has changed since David's time because this is the reigning mantra of our day. You do you. No breaks, no restrictions, no throttle. How else do you explain? We're here, we're queer, and we're coming for your children. That was chanted at a pride parade in New York City just last week or the glory of God's creation and gender differences being squashed and muddled and rebelled against at extreme levels and even infiltrating our schools and very young children. The slippage into unthrottled foolishness is not as far as you think though, not as far as any of us think. All you have to do is remove God from any situation. Remove the objective standard of good and right and you end up with a society that will eventually completely lose its way. Suddenly there's no anchor, and so drifting is the expectation, and drifting is the norm, and before long you don't even know you're drifting, and how far away from home base you've drifted. The world that says in its heart, there is no God. The country that says in its heart, there is no God, eventually ends up with pretty much what you see reflected in the footage of CNN and Fox every day of the week. Let's not fool ourselves like I was tempted to do this last week when I was studying. Oh, the foolish, you say, David, I know who they are, and I'm not one of them. I ain't no fool. But has this theory of life, doing what you want, without the throttle of God and his word, has it unknowingly slipped into your life? That is functional atheism. Functional atheists might claim to have some knowledge of God, but they do what they want without the consistent and conscious throttle of God and his word. So what is sin? What is sin if not acting the part of a functional atheist as if God doesn't know what he's talking about in any decision that you have to make in your life? Anytime you give in to sin, anytime I give in to sin, whatever that might be, whatever your particular brand of temptation is in your life for you, I'm sure yours is different than mine, But whenever you give in to that temptation, you are acting like, in that moment, God isn't right, God doesn't see, God doesn't care, or God isn't there. Any and every sin is explained by that. You are a functional atheist, I am a functional atheist in that moment. Because we are acting like, God isn't right, God doesn't see, God doesn't care, or God isn't there. It's just a slide into functional atheism. We want to spend where we want. We want to look at what we want. We want to do with Sundays what we want when the church gathers. We want to sleep with who we want. We want to drink as much as we want. We want to treat others how we want. As human beings, unfortunately, this is our story. It's a sobering. But I think David probably knew some of the foolish people by name that he's talking about. The wicked clearly wanted something that God wouldn't let them have in their lives. I should say the foolish clearly wanted something that God wouldn't let them have. So what do they do? Look at the beginning of verse 3. They turned aside. They turned aside. So to turn aside from the Lord, these people must have been with the Lord at some point, right? In other words, these were people that David worshipped with at some point. People that David sang with and lifted praises to the Lord. People that David loved and admired. You walk with Jesus long enough, and you too will eventually see friends, heroes, mentors even, let you down, go off the rails, and probably do everything that they at one point warned you about. I watched this recently in real time as some prominent Christians have deconstructed, is the word for it now, or left the faith. In every case of deconstruction where someone turns their back on Jesus. In every case, you can bet that some philosophy from the world distracted their gaze, and the desires of their soul began to shift, and suddenly God's word seemed insufficient. Suddenly God's word seemed backwards. And so instead of submitting to the word, they became beholden to their desires instead. Their functional atheism eventually led them to creedal atheism. And it's a dangerous drift that we're all prone to. David writes to protect us from that, to give us that group of fans, Psalm 14. Hey, hang on. It's worth it. It's worth it. D.A. Carson encapsulates what David knows so well. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance, tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. This is the slide into foolishness. Over time, this kind of functional atheism will lead us down the path to an outright rejection of Jesus. And the fools on this path substitute the beautiful Savior of the world with an empty Savior of their own making. And they eventually turn their backs on Jesus. They call it enlightenment, but it's not. The end of the deconstruction of your faith is not enlightenment. It is death apart from God. And it's terrifying to find out that you're on the wrong side. The fate of the foolish is found in verse 5. Look at it. It says, There they, the foolish, are in great terror. For God is not with them, but God is with the generation of the righteous. (laughs) Maybe the idea of a terrifying God does not sit well with you. In modern-day America, the idea of a terrifying God is not very popular. God is love, and God is only love. But one of the amazing advantages of working through the Scriptures verse by verse through the Bible is that it does not allow us to get, get away with such benign versions or visions, descriptions of God. It's kind of like the diet soda version of God. We've talked about the diet soda version of God before. You can tell yourself all you want, that Diet Coke tastes like Coke, or that Coke Zero tastes like Coke, but you know you are telling yourself a lie. That does not taste the same. You taste that stuff and you know immediately that it is not the real thing, the real stuff. It doesn't have the same robust Crisp flavor of a regular ice cold Coca Cola. And I feel like we might be tempted to have this same really diet soda version of God in our minds sometime. If all we ever do is listen to the truisms created by the authors we read, or the tweeters we follow, or the celebrity Christians that we follow, but when we read and preach really carefully through all of the scriptures, we get a really robust and, dare I say, complex picture of who God really is. And it's not a clean and safe picture. I'm glad that this picture of God in Psalm 14 did not get edited out. In this text, the Lord terrifies. He's terrifying. I use this quote from Dale Ralph Davis, number one, because his name is Dale Ralph Davis, and number two, because it's such a great quote, and I use it about once a summer, whenever in the Psalms, he says this. This, that God will terrify the fools who are indifferent to him. This tells us that God is not a mere three-letter word. The God of the Bible is not a formless blob of celestial protoplasm, not some sort of cosmic jello with a sickly smile. He has a nature, a character, positive and negative. He is not the grand relativist, but the living extremist. Let the flaming passion of these words particularly from Psalm 14. Slither down the throat of your soul and see how different this virile, biblical God is from the sentimental deity men imagine. There is nothing bland about Yahweh. God is the singular cosmic authority on all things. Not some warm, fuzzy, weekend side hustle for you. He wants all of you. He demands all of you. Not just 10 to noon on Sundays. The vision of Psalm 14 is in direct opposition to most of what we see in the aisles of the Christian section at Barnes & Noble or the Christian, Christian section of Amazon.com, I guess. God is intent on these actions because his people will only have ultimate rest. God is intent on being true to his character because his people, as us, y'all, his people will only have ultimate rest if their oppressors are dealt with. Dale Ralph Davis goes on to say, until the enemy is destroyed, God's people will have no genuine security. People may bemoan this teaching, but unless there is decisive judgment, there is no solid salvation. How is that going to happen? Only when Jesus puts his foot down fully and finally. And if you are in the wrong place with God, it's really going to hurt. I say that as lovingly as I can. This is what David is preaching to himself though in these moments when he is feeling misunderstood and marginalized and just crushed by it all. He's pulling out some binoculars that can somehow see into the future and what does he see in the future, verse five? There they are, the foolish in great terror. Those who are indifferent to God, they're terrified because God is not with them but with the righteous. When he was feeling marginalized, On that day, he was remembering who will win on the last day. I was trying to crawl up inside of what this terror will feel like one day, and I don't think it's even possible to to crawl up inside of that feeling of what it feels like to be on the opposite side of the ring of God. But I have had a terrifying recurring dream For almost 40 years of my life now. I mentioned this to Miriam this morning, and apparently I'd never told her about this. So it was uh, fresh news for Miriam and fresh news for you guys. I just had this dream like a year or two ago, so so recently. So it's the childhood version of me. I'm maybe like four or five. Uh, I am standing on the front porch of my childhood home, and I'm trying desperately to get into the front door, but the front door won't open. Uh, And as I'm sort of working with that, the doorknob on the front door, this dark sedan pulls up in front of our house, and a man slips out of the car. I don't know him, but somehow I know this is a bad dude, all right? Uh, he walks toward the front door, through the yard. He's walking toward me, and his pace is quickening as he gets nearer to me, and he's reaching out to grab me, and at that very moment is the moment that I always wake up. <laughs> I don't know what happens after that moment. I'd kinda like to see what happens after that moment, eventually, or maybe I wouldn't, I don't know. Um, Frantically trying to open the door, crying, freaking out, and I wake up. That is the dream that has terrified me most in my life, and it might be in my sleep, the most terrified I've ever felt uh, in my life, uh, awake or asleep. It's only slightly better than one of my daughter's recurring nightmares, which is a big man on a flying motorcycle, flying in through her second story window, and taking her away to live with him. So what terrifies you? Bad men at the front door? Big men on flying motorcycles? One thing that should absolutely, in all seriousness, terrify you to no end is not having God as the advocate in your corner, but seeing him in the opposite corner. Verse 5, There the foolish are in great terror because God is with the righteous and not with them. But the other day I got to thinking about my dream. What if just for once at the end of my dream, and maybe God will let me dream this one day to get to see the next step in my dream. What if at the end of my dream that door, that front door would pop open because it was opened by my father, my dad from the inside and he would just run out the door and tuck me behind him and stand in between me and the bad dude that was coming after me. That dream would end so differently, wouldn't it? With joy, rather than the tears I experience every time I dream that dream? Listen, church, the world is coming at us. You feel it advancing on us every single day, reaching out to drag us away with him. But one day, that door will pop open, and Jesus will fully and finally tuck us behind him, and we will know that we are safe forever because of his work on the cross. We won't be the terrified ones on that day. Link up with Jesus now while there is time All those fools who say, no, God, fools who reject the merciful, loving calls of their Savior, they will be terrified. As gently as I can say this, if God is against you, you should feel tremendous amounts of fear. But he doesn't have to be against you. He can be for you through Jesus Christ. Please don't reject our Lord. The Christian faith is unpopular. I get it. I can feel the tug too. I'm not immune to that as a pastor. But for the love of God and by the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit of God, grab on and hang on. If there is a particular issue of our faith that is especially troubling to you, let's chat. It would be a total joy to walk alongside you in that. You're in a safe place to doubt, to bring those doubts. We're here for you in that. Our society, though, they're going to keep on blaspheming. They're going to keep on acting and living like God isn't a thing. They will strut. They will swagger. You will limp. And that's okay. Jesus, by his spirit and through his church, those around you, are going to keep on walking with you, even in the midst of your struggle. And that's how we can press on even while we wait for God's full and final redemption to arrive. That door will eventually pop open and you're going to want Jesus as your advocate in that moment. If Jesus is your advocate, if you are safely tucked behind him, behind his righteous life, his violent death, his triumphant resurrection, you got nothing to fear, nothing to be terrified. You are not the fool that this psalm is talking about. Now this is great. It's kind of a great, wonderful picture to be reminded of. Uh, but the wicked still seem to be winning today. The fools seem to be running the show, don't they? Hang on, because part two of this psalm is coming. As we transition here, part two is much shorter than part one. As we transition to part two, I want to show you a place where Paul actually quotes Psalm 14 in the New Testament. Uh, he brings it into some of his writings. So in, in Romans 1, you might be familiar with it, Paul is making the case that all non-Jews are in desperate need for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 2, Paul's like, I'm going to leave you Jews out of this. All you Jews, you desperately need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then in, in uh, Romans 3, Paul sort of flattens the playing field for everyone. He's like, all y'all, all of us, we are equally needy for the grace of God. Everyone is extremely, desperately needy, every human being ever. So the point is that we all start out like verse 1 in our psalm here, Psalm 14. We all start out saying, there is no God, or no, God. That's how we start our lives, no exception. It's not just the village atheist who says, no, God. It's all of us. Romans 3, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And here's where he begins the Psalm 14 quote. He says, as it is written... None is righteous, no, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So here it is, we all get flattened right here. So every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So Paul is sort of like repackaging Psalm 14 here and making the point that every person ever is equally accountable to God and equally needy for the grace of God. So that's all of us in here and every human being on the face of the planet. So if David is right and if Paul is right, if there's none righteous, not even one, if no one seeks God, then what are we to do? We learned in verse five that God is definitely against people like that. And that's how Paul is describing every human ever. So it seems like we're in a quandary here. It seems like we're headed to that terrifying end in verse 5. Unless that door swings open. And boy, does it ever do that. Check this out. Just two verses later in Romans 3, this door swings open with fresh hope. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Well so there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But they get to be justified his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the pathway from fool to faithful is paved with Jesus' perfect righteousness. That's the righteousness of God that Paul is referring to there in Romans 3, Jesus' perfect righteousness. That is the only pathway, the only road from fool to faithful is paved with Jesus' righteousness. If we want God to view us as faithful and not as foolish, we must place our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus in our place. Jesus was faithful for us in our place. I think we as Christians can sometimes too quickly rush to the cross. Before you kick me out and fire me as your pastor, hear me out, okay? We forget that before the cross, there were 30-plus years before Jesus ever died. I and mean, you think about this. Why didn't Jesus just show up on Good Friday, die real quick, rise on Sunday, and then bail 40 days later. Why didn't he do that? Why did he come as a baby and live a full 30 years? It's because he was writing your resume, and he was writing my resume for me. He was living my perfect, righteous life, so that his perfect, righteous life, so that he could apply that perfect righteousness to our accounts. Because we don't have that account. Our account is empty. To, he did this to legally transition us from fools to faithful. By faith, we can be treated by God as if we've accomplished what Jesus accomplished. In other words, we are given an identity that is not our own. It's like presenting a resume that isn't ours and getting hired for it. Only this resume is Jesus's and it's your resume through faith. Jesus prints off his resume and says, here, When the father asks you what business you have with him, just hand him this, and you'll get in. The only way you can lay aside your foolish identity is through faith, embracing the identity, the resume of another, the righteousness of God and Jesus applied to your account. If you want to enjoy the spoils at the end of this psalm, you're going to need to embrace Jesus as your advocate, and you do that by embracing his resume. So n- number two this morning, when your faith is under attack, remember the future of the faithful. We've talked about how you can transition from fool to faithful. Let's talk about the results of that. Remember the future. What a weird thing to say. How can one remember the future? Marty McFly could do that because his future was his past, but that's beside the point. How can we recall something that hasn't happened yet? It's a strange way of talking because in almost everything in life, the future is unsure, so we can't recall it. But for the Christian, is different. Our future is set in stone. So we can recall, remember the future. That's what David is doing here. Look at verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the, future, the fortunes of his people. This renewal that he's talking about comes from a place called Zion. And so before, we don't have time to explore all the, the depths and the meanings of Zion, but before... Zion became synonymous with, like, heaven. We'll sing in a few minutes here that we will feast in the house of Zion. That's talking about feasting in heaven forever with our God. But before Zion became synonymous with heaven, it was an actual geographical location. It was the hill on which the city of Jerusalem stood. And so David is praying, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And God answered that prayer on a hillside just there in Zion, a hillside called Calvary, this is where salvation for Israel, both ethnic and then spiritual Israel, we are, most of us in here are not ethnic Jews, but we can enter spiritual Israel through faith in Jesus, man, I just got us deep into that, and I did not mean to, Uh, that's for another day, Um, God answered David's prayer though, uh, for the salvation to come through Zion, when Jesus came to die in Zion on Calvary. And Jacob and Israel, there at the very end of that verse 7, are rejoicing because this is a promise that has been whispered about, bandied about for thousands of years, and it's finally coming true in the person of Jesus. The long awaited son of Jacob, the Redeemer, the Savior King of the Jews, had finally come, and that's why they're rejoicing. But though it hadn't happened yet for David when he penned this psalm, it wasn't an if for him, just a when. Not an if salvation comes, but when salvation comes. There's so much certainty about things that haven't happened yet for David. Certainty about things that haven't happened yet. And because for us, because Jesus did come, we can have the same level of certainty that David did. We too will feast in the house of Zion, church. In verse seven, David is surrounded by his enemies, but he's looking up to the corner of that stadium and reminding himself that God will keep his promise. Because of the gospel, even when our present is painful, Our future can always be hopeful. Our future is always hopeful. In the end, we celebrate this a lot in recent months. I don't know why the Lord has it on our plate so often. But in the end, we celebrate that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. In the end, Jesus will come back in splendor and in power. The door pops open and he saves us forever. This alone, this truth alone has the power to expel hopelessness from the darkest of our nights. Locking our minds on the next life can help put everything in this life in perspective. I get it. Man, the scoreboard looks rough right now. Looks like we are losing. But the victory of pure, Jesus-centered eternity is already in the books. Not if, but when. And when the victory comes, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The end matters. When things look like they're slipping out of control, the end matters. When the suffering intensifies, the end matters. When there are more questions than answers, the end matters. It matters even more than your present. So as we continue to endure without home-field advantage, it will be a while that we are not experiencing home-field advantage. Just know there will probably be pain. There will be hardship. There will be tears and heartache. But of all people, we Christians can keep these things in perspective. When When your faith is under attack, remember the fate of the foolish. When your faith is under attack, remember the fortunes of the faithful. And when you feel marginalized today, remember who wins on the last day. Mike is going to come pray these truths into our bones, and then we'll celebrate this table together.
2: Let's pray. lord god almighty we in one way lord we thank you that in your mercy none of us have ever felt the terror of facing you in your holiness and in our sinfulness we have never done that we lord that in your mercy and grace you've given us the opportunity to never need to experience that, but rather to know your forgiveness in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave us redemption through your blood, and you told us that you would not leave us as orphans, but you would send your Spirit to remind us Lord, we ask for your help not to be functional atheists, that we would not say with our lips that you are Lord, but say in our hearts, there is no God. We ask, Lord Jesus, that we would be functionally redemptive, redeemed in our hearts as well. Lord Jesus, that the power of your spirit would remind us again and again and again and again. Every second of every day, you are there and that we can walk this road on this earth day after day faithful to you because you were faithful to us. And that we can remember that we will be with you in glory and that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Lord, these words mean nothing except that your power of your Holy Spirit makes them real to our lives, that the power of your Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts to see the truth and to feel the truth and to live the truth. Amen.